Welcome to Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward, and along with me we have the co-host of the show and the creator of the show, Mr. Tom Jokic. Tom, we got a really special edition of the program today because it's all about one of the lads. It's all about John Lennon. That's right, Christopher, and we've got John Lennon clips from many different eras during those early Beatle press conferences, uh, throughout the middle of the Beatles era, right through to his days living in New York City. He's going to talk about writing with Paul McCartney and how Paul kept the band together in the later years. He talks about fame and drugs, neither of which made him any happier. Mm -hmm. He tells us what he really thought about Sgt. Pepper, (laughs) and that's fascinating. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. He tells us who should have gotten a co-songwriting credit for the song Imagine. And I think you can probably figure that one out yourself. Yeah, it was me. (laughs) And the centerpiece (laughs) of this episode is an amazing 1974 interview with John Lennon. And we'll talk to the guy who conducted the interview. We spoke to him just a few days ago, and it is exceptional. The interview is exceptional, and the guy we're talking to has great stories surrounding that interview. Plus, we have a whole bunch of John Lennon cool song facts, including the story of the song he wrote to intentionally confuse Beatles fans. So, while we are observing the anniversary of John's tragic death, we are actually going to turn this episode into a celebration of John's life. Let's get started. We all shine on instant karma, John Lennon from 1970. Tom, this is one of those times when we don't need to talk about what band the artists used to be in, how many records they've sold, or how influential they are, because we are talking about the one and only John Lennon. Yeah. Now, occasionally around the time of John's passing, I allow myself to wonder, what if? Hmm. Personally, I might, I'll get in trouble for this, but I don't feel like his last two albums, Double Fantasy and Milk and Honey, were his best work, although mm-hmm. I do love Beautiful Boy. Oh, great song. But Lennon wasn't known for reworking his songs and editing himself, with, with some powerful exceptions like Strawberry Fields Forever. And like an, an artist, say, like Neil Young, he was willing to try things out in public, moving on before settling for too long in any one direction. Now, his later music does sound more at ease, as revealed here in the domestic themes of the songs, but I'm pretty sure he wouldn't have stopped there. What do you think? Would he have approved the remixes of Sgt. Pepper, The White Album, and Abbey Road? Huh, I don't know. Or or would he have cared? Hmm. And how about that Cirque du Soleil mashup called Love? My opinion is that he would have loved it because he wasn't precious at all about the music. Mm-hmm, right. now, now, maybe it's absurd to imagine... Imagine Lennon jamming with Kanye and Rihanna (laughs) or Dave Grohl. Right. Or or is it? Yeah. But say Elvis Costello or Johnny Cash, as McCartney did, why not? I mean, could the inevitable duet with Willie Nelson have been coming soon? I mean, come on. (laughs) And what about the provocateur whose clownish public events included bagism, the bed-ins for peace, planting acorns, or the infamous cover of Two Virgins? Mm -hmm. Would his activism have given way to the quiet life of double fantasy, or would it have found new life in something like the environmental movement? Those are great questions, Christopher, and I actually expect that he would have been a real activist. He would have continued. Yeah. At any rate, we are left with the music. Mm -hmm. Thank heavens. And the imagined coffee mugs and (laughs) words. 
so many words, which is why we do this show. Absolutely. The words in question and the Lenin segments you are going to hear coming up are from all different periods and have no firm date attached. Sometimes you can tell by the subject matter or occasionally a little time frame reference sneaks in, but it's a wealth of great John Lennon clips wherever they're from. We start with John talking about the Beatles' acting skills. The director knew that we can't act, you know. Sure, but they don't give a tape. <laughs> the director knew that we couldn't act. You know, and we knew it too. That's Ringo shouting in the background. So the thing he had to do was to try and sort of almost catch us off guard, only you can't do that in a film. You've got to repeat things over and over. But he did his best, which he did quite well, to get it almost natural. And the bits that are natural stand out like a sore thumb. And you know what a sore thumb stands out like. Okay, so that movie, A Hard Day's Night, was silly and frantic, but it was great. It perfectly captured the Beatles at their wittiest and driest, and it also reflected the madness around them at the time. And it was on the set of that movie that George Harrison met Patty Boyd, who would become his first wife, and also in that movie as an extra a 10-year-old boy named Phil Collins. (laughs) That's such a great detail. Coming up, Tom, I love this segment. It's, It's just an excerpt from a classic Beatles press conference, something that they mastered at the time, and they used it to dodge and weave through the absurdity of their fame. Gentlemen, uh, you received the medals for assisting the British economy a couple of years ago. The economy's in kind of rough shape now. I'm still assisting the economy. <laughs> Anything to give it a fresh boost? Any plans to give it Well, we could give them the medals back. It's very friendly here. I think I'll relax. Wow. You know, there's such energy, and it's so great in that moment. Those press conferences, you know, if you're a new Beatles fan, you know, if you've never seen or heard those press conferences, do do yourself a favor and go to YouTube and just click on Beatles press conferences. And they were so charming, and it was almost shocking for the press to be disarmed and to fall in love with these four guys from England and their wit and their kind of easy manner and their just sharpness was so refreshing at the time. It's so enjoyable. Yeah, it's been great to relive that. Mm -hmm. Let's jump ahead a few years now. Here's John Lennon addressing drug use directly. The only time we took drugs was when we were without hope and the only way we got out of it was with hope. And if we can sustain the hope, then we don't need liquor, drugs or anything. But if we lose hope, you know, what is it all? What can you do? And of course, the story goes that Bob Dylan was the one who introduced marijuana to the Beatles. Ah, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Paul talks about the infamous Two Virgins scandal. I started to tell him off about the Two Virgins cover just because it shocked me as much as it shocked him, as much as it shocked anyone. And I just said, well, you know, you're going to get in trouble doing that. And he said, well, I don't mind. I'd rather do it and get into trouble if I get into trouble. He said, I don't even think I will. So I eventually came round to it. And I said, well, don't get yourself in trouble, son. Go ahead. You know, I I think it's a good thing now. Silly of me to try and protect John. He knows what's going on. So that clip there has to be from about 1968 or 69. And it's funny. Paul seems so protective of John. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even when John seems to be making a serious mistake. And if you don't know what the Two Virgins scandal is, it's when John and Yoko made an album of that name and then posed fully, totally, completely, shockingly naked for the front cover. (laughs) And it really is. 
it really is shocking. Even by today's standards, you're just going to go, oh, wow. If you've never seen it, get the kids in the basement so they can't see it and then open it up and have a look and you will just <laughs> shake your head and go, wow, they did that. It's just a couple of naked bodies, folks. That's it's true. all right. But here's what I want to know. How many people do you think are aware of the cover versus how many people have heard the contents of the music? I've never heard that album. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let me just say, it's half an hour of your life you'll never get back again. It's, there's, <laughs> there's some whistling. Uh, there's some bird sound effects. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> it's pretty nutty. Anyway, here's Ringo weighing in on the very same topic. I think he's very brave and very strong, and he's doing a good job, you know. He could jump off the Eiffel Tower and I'd approve it, because he feels strongly for everything he does, usually, and that's the, the only way to do anything. Again, despite everything they had been through, they were still a tight-knit group. By the way, just a reminder that along with these great John Lennon interview clips that we're playing for you right now, we have a wonderful 1974 interview coming up, and we'll interview the guy who did that interview. So stick around for that. So here Tom John talks about one of his books. Now, it could be a Spaniard in the works or in his own right. I'm not sure. That was just a hangover from school, you know. I mean, I used to make the lads laugh with that scene, talking like that and writing poetry like I used to write them and just give them to friends to laugh at and that was the end of it so when they all go down the book what well, it turns into a book and into a play etc etc it's just my style of humor I was never any good at spelling all my life you know I never quite got the idea of spelling English and writing fine but actually spelling the words so and also if I, I typed a lot of the book and I can only do it very slowly with the fingers, so the, shorty, the stories would be very short because I couldn't be bothered going on. <laughs> and also, I'd, I'd spell it as, as you say it, like Latin, really. Yes. You know, or just try and do it the simplest way to get it over with, because all I'm trying to do is tell a story. And what the words is spelt like is irrelevant, really. But if they make you laugh because the word used to be spelled like that, that's great. But the thing is the story and the sound of the word. That's a great clip. Capturing the sensibility of John Lennon, his way with words was both very clever and very dry. And you know that he's telling the truth yes. about not being able to spell. Yeah. Yes, but not only that, not having like not having the patience to spell things properly, and also you know the the old hunt and pick method on the on the typewriter, where he didn't yeah. want to waste any more time than he had to trying to spell a word. There's something that's both like funny and also incisive about the way he spells words. And it always came across as very witty. Now, the absurdity of it, though, was very influenced by Lewis Carroll and other mm. writers of the time as well. Yeah. Here, John talks about the origins of the bed-in for peace. Uh, well, it, was a, it built up over a number of years, but uh, a sort of thing that stuck it off was we got a letter from a guy called Peter Watkins, who made a film called The War Game. And it was a long letter stating what's happening, who's got, you know, how the media is controlled, how it's all run, everything that sort of everybody knows, that bit. But he sort of said it in black and white for hours and hours on pages, and it ended up, what are you going to do about it? What are you uh, he said sort of people in your position and our position, because he's a sort of filmmaker, uh, or, or have a responsibility especially to use the media for world peace. And we sat on the letter for three weeks thinking, well, we're doing our best, and uh, well, uh, you know, uh, all you need is love, man, and all that. And But finally, we came up and with the bed event after that, and that's what really sparked it off, you know. It was like getting your call-up papers for peace. We got it, and we sat on it for three weeks while we worked out what to do, and then we did the bed event. 
John and Yoko caused such a stir when they staged those Bed in for Peace events in various cities around the world. Much more to come on this John Lennon tribute edition of Famous Lost Words, including John's devastatingly honest assessment of the price of fame. Famous Lost Words is brought to you by The Case for Wine. For all of you wine lovers in Southern Ontario, you now have access to one of the world's best selections of wine delivered right to your door. And with Christmas on the way, Rick at The Case for Wine can set you up with some stunning Christmas gift packs, like the red and white gift pack, a bottle of world-class red and a world-class white in an elegant wooden crate, or the Tuscan Renaissance case, six bottles of excellent Chianti, Brunello, and Super Tuscan wines. And how about a case of Bottera Pesamento? This is the wine I've been raving about, a beautiful wrapped bottle of wine. That's the label. It looks like gift wrapping, and it makes a perfect gift, and it's very reasonably priced. Need some champagne for the holidays? Try Sherlin, one of the fastest-growing champagnes in North America, owned by basketball great Isaiah Thomas. And great for New Year's celebrations. That's the case for wine, quality artisanal wine. To order your case, here's the email address, rick at thecaseforwine.com. That's rick at thecaseforwine.com. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward. We're honoring the life of John Lennon on the 40th anniversary of his passing. Did John really say, I buried Paul in strawberry fields forever? He'll answer that question in four minutes. Christopher, what do we have now? Now, this is fascinating, as Lennon talks about the shifting songwriting responsibilities in The Beatles. If we are comfortable and enjoy being The Beatles, we'll do it. And when we don't, we won't. That's always been the case. The last four years, every time we've made a record, it's been a decision of whether to carry it on from there. Now, the point is, in the old days, Paul and I would knock off an LP and write most of the songs and do it. Now, nowadays, there's three of us writing equally good songs and wanting that much space. Now, the problem now is, do you make a double album every time, which takes six months of your life, or do you make one album, we spend three or four months making one album, maybe get two tracks each? That's the problem, you know, it's just a a physical problem, you know, and whether we do it or not, I've no idea. you You can tell that that clip is from the last days of the Beatles, when they were just trying to figure out the future. And this reminds me of a passage from Rob Sheffield's book called Dreaming the Beatles. Okay, bear with me here. So, Rob, first of all, is a great writer, and he's also a crazy Beatles fan. So this is what Rob says about the Beatles, and you may or may not agree with every one of these things, but it's very interesting. The Beatles invented the self-contained rock and roll band, playing their own instruments and writing their own hits. They invented the idea that the world's biggest pop group could also evolve into arty, innovative musicians. They invented most of what rock stars do. They invented breaking up. They invented long hair, going to India, having a guru, round granny glasses, solo careers, (laughs) beards, press conferences, divisive girlfriends, writing your own songs, funny drummers. They invented the idea of assembling a global mass audience and then challenging, disappointing, and confusing that audience. As far as the rest of the planet is concerned, they invented England. (laughs) (laughs) Well, whatever your opinion may be, that is a brilliant quote. I love that. Tom, here Lennon talks about the meaning of fame. This is after. I mean, the Beatles made it four years ago and they stopped touring and they had all the money they wanted and all the fame they wanted. 
and they found out they had nothing and then we started on our various trips of LSD and Maharishi and all the rest of the things we did and mo the old gag about money and power and fame is not the answer we didn't have any hope just because we were famous you see all that Marilyn Monroe and all those other people they had everything the Beatles had that's no answer Oh, how true is that? If you ever have to ask if fame leads to happiness, look no further than John Lennon, Whitney Houston, Janis Joplin, and so many others. And many of the ones who survived will also attest to that very same sentiment. Of course, he also addressed this musically in that Bowie co-write, Fame. That's right. Here's the kind of cold take on his and Paul's songwriting. The combined efforts were because, uh, really, because... Uh, we had to fill out the tracks, you know, and we had to really struggle with some crappy songs. Um. But now George has got his, there's no point in us do knocking off John and Paul songs. Um. I mean, we wrote some good stuff together, but we also wrote a lot of rubbish, you know. And it's, I prefer it with three songwriters. But, you know, if there's no room, we just have to do, put them somewhere else, the songs. You know, as we've discussed before, Stevie Nicks had much the same complaint as John Lennon did there. She would only be allowed three or four songs on every Fleetwood Mac album, which would come out every two or three years. And that just wasn't enough for an artist to express themselves. So you can see how John Lennon would feel the same way, even though they released albums a little bit more frequently. But, you know, you're getting three songs, um, you know, every six, eight months or, or four songs in a year. That's not enough when you're an artist like him who always wanted to express himself and also always wanted to release those songs much quicker than every six months. I'm sure Paul and George felt the same. Yeah. Tom, here's the definitive answer to one aspect of the Paul is dead nonsense, particularly <laughs> the speculation that John says, I buried Paul at the end of Strawberry Fields Forever. It doesn't say that. It says cranberry sauce. And it's me going, cranberry sauce, cranberry sauce. So that's what it says. Somebody came up with number nine is the macrobiotic regime because number nine is the diet, the 10 days rice. So. But it was uh, subliminal. I didn't know anything about it. Christopher, I've told you this story. When my youngest son, Graham, was probably about eight or nine years old, <laughs> I told him about the Paul is Dead rumors and the I Buried Paul yeah. part, and I played him the end of Strawberry Fields, and the, ki the poor kid turned white. He was so scared, <laughs> and he wouldn't listen to that song again for years. <laughs> like, even as he... Oh. Like, like he, you know, he knew the, the White Album backward and forward, but he wouldn't touch Strawberry Fields Forever because he remind, it reminded him of how scared he was when he first heard it. <laughs> Call child services here. I Tom. know, I'm that's worried. bad parenting, bad parenting. <laughs> <laughs> here Lennon reconsiders Sgt. Pepper, an album that has been named the number one album of all time. I think each album since Pepper has been better. You know, pe people just have this dream about Pepper. Uh, it was good for then, you know, but it wasn't that spectacular. I mean, when you look back on it, I mean, like anything, it was great then. But I certainly prefer some of the tracks off the double album and some of the tracks off the Abbey Road than all the tracks on Pepper. You know, when you think back on Pepper, what do you remember? Yeah. Uh, like Day in the Life <laughs> or something like that. Yeah. It's just I go for individual songs, not the whole album. Oh, I don't know. I think that John may be uh, taking a shot at Paul in that way because... That album was more Paul's baby? That's what I'm thinking. Well, conceptually, yeah. it was more Paul's baby, but yeah. I don't know. Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, anyone? Yeah, A Day in the Life. And as, as he, as, yes, exactly. So, yeah. 
Lennon talks about three of his best-known songs and how they were accepted, or not, by the other Beatles. Because originally uh, I caught Revolution Number no. 2, the one that's on the album, and Revolution Number no. 9 uh, with them. But they went away and I was wanted out as a single because it was Revolution and that's what... There's a lot of violence going on and I wanted to get it out as a single. But the others sort of came back from holiday and said, oh, well, we don't think it's commercial or not good enough or some crap like that. And uh, we waited and waited. We got Hey Jude, but we would have had both mm. if we hadn't waited. Mm. And that kind of thing I can't wait for, you know. Right, right. But they, they let me put Ballad of John and Yoko out. You know, I wanted it out as news, not as something, you know, the film of the event. I want the right. video of the event happening then. I offered Cold Turkey to Beatles, but they weren't ready to record a single. So I did it as Plastic Owner. You know? mm. I don't care what it goes out as, as long as it goes out. Oh, wow, that is a great clip. Boy, you can hear John's frustration with the other Beatles in that clip. John does give Paul credit for something, keeping the lads together. Uh, for a couple of years, Paul was the one that was hustling us together and saying, come on, record, you know, we go, oh, come on, you know, don't feel like it and all that. But now I've got something else other than just recording to think about, and that's what made me active. But because I was really losing interest in just doing the Beatles bit, you know. I think we all were, but Paul did a good job in holding us together for a few years while we were sort of undecided what to do. Yeah, Paul was definitely the cheerleader for the band, and from what I hear, he was the most accepting of Yoko's presence, although not always. You know, at one point when Yoko was bedridden, John had her wheeled into the recording studio during a Beatles session so that she could be there and offer her opinions on the music. Imagine <laughs> how that would have changed the dynamic of the band in the studio. But I know that Paul thought, as long as John's happy, let's keep going. Because Paul was the peacemaker. He was the one always advocating to get the guys in the studio. So if Yoko was what kept him in the studio, then Yoko could stay. Ever the pragmatist, right? Yeah. Here, John Lennon rewrites some songwriting history, and the song in question is Imagine. Well, actually, uh, that should be credited as a Lennon Ono song mm -hmm. because a lot of mm -hmm. it, the lyric and the concept came from Yoko. But those days, I was a bit more selfish, a bit more macho, and I sort of um, omitted to mention her contribution. But it was right out of Grapefruit, her book. There's a whole pile of pieces about imagine this and imagine that. And uh, I have give her credit now, long overdue. John Lennon and Imagine from 1971, and there he says that Yoko should have gotten a songwriting credit. That is among the many songs that could be in the running for the best John Lennon song ever written. What's your favorite? Whoa. Oh, boy. Christopher. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I just hit you out of the blue there. I know you, you weren't expecting this. Well, Christopher, not sure if you remember, but probably just a few months ago, I told you that I was listening to all of the Beatles albums uh, in order. Yeah. The one time where I was almost gasping because of how great the song was, and that is A Day in the Life. Well, yeah. That is the one song that stopped me cold and gave me goosebumps, especially the orchestral part and the very end, that final note. Yeah. So I think that would be Can't it. Can't go wrong with that one. A Day in the Life, The Beatles from 1967. 
This is Famous Lost Words as we celebrate the life of John Lennon 40 years after his death. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward. Still to come, an extraordinary John Lennon interview from 1974 and much more. Christopher, what is your favorite John Lennon song? For me, there were so many John Lennon songs that the first time I heard them, it's like they changed everything. Right. They changed my, you know, my perception of what the Beatles were and what they could do and what could be written about in a song. Whether it was something in the earlier days like Hide Your Love Away oh. or Norwegian Wood. I remember I heard Norwegian Wood and I was just like, oh my God. Yeah. This was a different type of Beatles song. And it was moving and it was weird and it was intriguing and poetic and all of these wonderful things. Yes. And then it just kept going from there, you know, with Strawberry Fields Forever and, well, we, we could go on. Yeah. Um, but let's get back to our John Lennon interviews, shall we? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Here, he talks about the planning for the release of Happy Christmas. We almost missed the Christmas market that year with that record. We got it out earlier in Britain than we did in America. Something held us up. I can't remember. There's so many things going on. But what we wanted to do was have something besides White Christmas being played every Christmas, you know? <laughs> and uh, there's always a war, right? There's always somebody getting shot. So every year you can play it and there's always somebody being tortured or shot somewhere. So it, it, the, the lyric stands in that respect. And it's so happy Christmas For black and for white John and Yoko, Happy Christmas War is Over 1971. Christopher, I'm not sure if you remember the giant billboards that John and Yoko bought during that time. They said... War is over in giant letters, and then the phrase, if you want it, underneath, and then Happy Christmas from John and Yoko. They were always campaigning for peace, and those billboards were just great. Like, they're stark. They're not beautiful. It looks like a New York Times headline, the way it's written. I know exactly what you're referring to. And, you you know, they had little little posters that were available at the time, and I had one. Oh, lovely. Tom, you can hear John's love of walking in New York and feeling free, but it's hard not to think of the outcome. When I left England, I still couldn't go on the street. It was still Carnaby Street and all that stuff was going on. We couldn't walk around the block, couldn't go to a restaurant, unless you wanted to go with the business of the star going to the restaurant garbage. I've been walking the streets for the last seven years. When we first moved here, we actually lived in the village, in Greenwich Village. She says, don't, you will be able to walk here, but I would be walking around tents like that, waiting for somebody to say something or jump on me and like that. And it took me two years to unwind, just to, I can go right out this door now and go in a restaurant. Do you want to know how great that is? Mm. Or go to the movies? I mean, people will come up and ask for autograph or say hi, but they won't bug you. You know, that clip prompts a lot of feelings, including the obvious tragic feeling of loss. But I also think of that great photo of John in that sleeveless T-shirt that says New York City. I think yeah. it's Bob Gruen who took uh-huh. that picture. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it is Bob. Yeah, and what a great image that is. And, and you know, that it, it's so beautiful because he looks so young and healthy and he loves New York. And, of course, the tragedy, that image is suffused with now. Tom, as a little postscript, we have this clip from Beatles producer George Martin from 1998. This is his remembrance of where he was when he heard about John Lennon's death. In, in John's case, I'd been working on an album with Paul McCartney. I think it was either... I think it was... Tug of War? I think it was Tug of War. And that day, we were going to meet in London. He was driving up from his house in the country, and I was driving up from my house, the other end of the country. I was in Wiltshire. And we were going to work in the studios. 
And the morning for me began round about six o'clock in the morning when the phone rang and I was sound asleep. And I picked it up wondering who the hell it was. And I was live on air and I didn't know it. And there was some guy ringing from America saying, Is that George Martin? Can you tell us how you feel about the death of John Lennon? I want a way to wake up. I couldn't believe it. And my reaction went out on air, live. And I couldn't, you know, it was such a stunning, awful thing to happen. And when I put the phone down, and I rang Paul immediately, even though it was six in the morning, and he'd already heard. And I said, Paul, you obviously don't want to come in to work today. He said, George, I couldn't stay here. You don't, don't you mind? Do you mind if we come in and, you know, meet? I said, sure, okay. So we met in my studios in London, and we didn't work. We just talked. We talked about John, and we talked about ourselves and what we'd been, been through. And it was a kind of easing of the pain for both of us. And he went home around about five or six that night. And there was a whole crowd of journalists outside. And he was still in a state of shock, as I was. And he, as he walked to his car, the journalists stuck microphones in front of him. Hey, Paul, what do you think about John dying? You know, these kind of questions make me so angry. And, and he said, yeah, it's a drag, isn't it? And got in his car. And he was labelled the following day as being callous and, and human. You know. And so you can't win. The late George Martin talking about John Lennon. And while we don't want to dwell too much about John's death and how dark the world felt in the days following, it is interesting to think of George Martin and Paul McCartney dealing with the news by sitting in the studio and talking about John. And I know you and I agree, Christopher, that Paul was unfairly hammered for his public reaction to John's death. The man was clearly in shock. By the way, you can hear much more of that George Martin interview in episode 117, and there are many other past episodes of Famous Lost Words that feature interviews with John, Paul, and George, so check those out. And yes, we will have some Ringo clips in the future. All right. (laughs) I've been waiting. Richie. This is Famous Lost Words as we continue with our tribute to John Lennon. Joining us now, legendary Canadian broadcaster John Donaby. Now, John's been featured in several of the interviews that we've already played in the first five seasons of Famous Lost Words. But, John, you're also well known for a 1974 interview that you did with John Lennon, which we'll hear in a few minutes. And if you haven't heard it before, you're going to love this chat. So, John, that wasn't your first encounter with Lennon, though, was it? I interviewed, well, no, I actually had a conversation with John Lennon in the tent uh, during the uh, live piece in Toronto in 1969, but that was just a chat. But in 1974, John Lennon had recorded Walls and and Bridges, and he was doing interviews in particular large cities like Chicago, Los Angeles, New York. He wanted to do Toronto. So who does he speak to? He doesn't know anybody in Toronto. So who does he call? He calls his old buddy, who he bunked with, with Yoko Ono, at his home in Mississauga, Ronnie Hawkins. <laughs> and the Hawk says, well, son, if you want to get a really good guy, you might want to get my friend John John. <laughs> so. Nice. Yeah, that's how I got the interview. He was very, very nice to me. He wasn't, um, I've got the whole 18 minutes that we did. And there's one line always stands out. And I said, uh, John, uh, would, would you ever think about, you know, the Beatles getting back together again? 
and I can't do the Liverpudlian accent, but he says, oh, no, he says, you know, hell, once was enough. Thank you very much. <laughs> very succinct. <laughs> this wasn't going to happen again. But for 18 minutes, he talked about doing Walls and Bridges and, of course, the thrill of having a son, Julian, playing on Lee Dorsey's Yaya uh, because he hadn't, he hadn't seen Julian in about four years. And um, it was wonderful. And, of course, he had May Pang with him in California, uh, who was his love interest at the time that Yoko Ono actually set up for him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was a, it was such a memorable interview. John, when you were backstage at the Rock and Roll Revival, I'm really curious to know sort of what your perspective on that was and what, what Lennon's attitude was. Because I was at that show, and I know well the history of it and the, the minimum amount of time they had to rehearse. I would have thought that he'd be a little bit on edge. What was, what were your, what was your experience with him? I think he was on edge, and Eric Clapton still tells the story, Christopher, that when they were getting ready to fly over, he had to get Lennon out of bed. And Lennon changed his mind. I'm not going. I'm not going. And you're bloody well right you're going and bringing Klaus <laughs> Worman and Alan White. John was not thrilled at the moment, but Clapton got him in the plane. Um, I found him to be a little nervous. And standing next to Yoko Ono in that little white bag of hers, I'd be very nervous screaming into that bag. But, you know, it was, uh, <laughs> he, he was magnificent. He was great. I just remember Eins, five, drive, fear, and boom, boom. Oh, man. I, I was in heaven because I never got to see the Beatles as the yeah. Beatles. So seeing John at that time, especially with the the three people in support, um, nervous, but he got through it very, very well. Yeah. Great memory, John. Fantastic. Thank it was you. a wonderful time. Yeah. Where were you when you heard about John's death? I was just going off to sleep, and a friend of mine from Q. Newsman calls me, says, John, John, John Lennon's been shot. Turn on the TV. Phone rings. And uh, it was Ross Davies from Chum FM. Can you get down here right now? And I got down there and I joined, um, I think it was Larry Wilson. And I joined uh, a couple of others. And we talked John Lennon for quite a while. And I knew the Hawk was in Fayetteville, Arkansas. So I called him and woke him up. We did a great interview. And I spent the night working on things about John Lennon. And it was, I'll be very honest with you, I'm a very emotional guy. That night, it's been 24 hours now without any sleep, and I put on Beautiful Boy. Oh. And I just started to weep. It, it just moved me so very, very much. Uh, I think, you know, we, between Elvis and Jim Croce, and we can name off a lot of people who got killed over the years, John Lennon affected me more with his death than any other uh, musician that I can think of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well said. Boy, you really hit the sweet spot there, John. I, I yeah. just couldn't agree with you more. I remember that night so clearly a friend called and told me, and I, I don't know, this is just my own personal reaction. I shut off the radio and TV for the next couple of days because I just didn't want to have to share my own personal grief with the with the outside world and I didn't want to hear opinions and comments and judgments of his career and his life and everything else and I just couldn't bear to hear the news over and over again and so literally just by myself I pulled out my guitar and sat and played my favorite John Lennon songs what song did you play Christopher across the universe oh great song great song flowing out like endless rain into a paper cup they slither wildly as they John Lennon, The Beatles, Across the Universe from 1970. 
So as promised, here is John Donaby's excellent interview with John Lennon from 1974. John, how are you? Very well, thank you. How's New York? Oh, it's beautiful. You know, I've been living here for three years now. How's the problems going, John, as far as, uh, well, you know, the uh, deportation? Well, every now and then, you know, they, whoever they are, announce that I've got 30 days to get out of the country, and then my lawyers go in and appeal it, and that gives me a few months' grace, you know. Mm -hmm. And I haven't left America for the last three years, because if I leave, I don't think I'd get back in. So I know uh, a friend of ours, a mutual friend called Ronnie Hawkins, and thought I was in town, but I'm, I'm not. I'm in New York. And I'd love to be able to travel, but at the moment it's impossible. If you should leave the country, I suppose they just will bar you entirely, is that right? Yeah, I think it's a bit of a Charlie Chaplin, you know. If I left, I wouldn't get back in. Uh, I'd hate to, you know, I'd come back in when I'm 60 and they give me a plaque, a gold record or something. <laughs> you know, that happened to Charlie Chaplin, right? Exactly. An obvious question, John, that many Canadians ask is if it indeed the United States will not allow you to live there, would you think of coming to Canada to live? Yeah, I would. I Actually, um, there was a period when I almost did, but, but uh, if it hadn't been for the, the kindness of some of your people there, including your, your president, I'm, I was having a little trouble uh, at the borders of Canada, too, because apparently these laws are sort of international or whatever. Right. And the, uh, there was a time when I, I dropped into Canada... And I did have a little hassle, but it was all sorted out for me, because I think they're a bit cooler about these things, you know? True, and I imagine you, uh, obviously Canada being a member of the uh, the Commonwealth, it would make it, should make it a little easier. Yeah, it would make it a little easier, but I just happen to be in love with New York. If you could have it moved up there, I'd be very happy, you know? <laughs> I'm, I'm taking a lot of my sources for the conversation today from a, an article that you did with Ray Coleman in Melody Maker, and he mentions that he found, when he was with you in New York, that... Uh, John Lennon had mellowed a lot. What does he What does he mean by that, or do you know for that matter? Well, I don't know. He, I, he, Ray is an old, old friend of mine, you know, mm -hmm. and he's a nice guy, and he, he, he does the same things he always did, which is he takes notes in shorthand and then can always get one word wrong, you know? Yes. But, it, you know what I mean, changes the whole thing. I'm probably a little mellower, but, you know, I'm 33 now. When he, he saw most of me, I was... In my middle 20s, and I was in the middle of Beatlemania, so I guess anybody that's been through that will have been mellowed down or, or finished off, you know? Uh, I've heard reports that uh, there was a while, of course, and understandably, understandably that you were uh, slightly perhaps bugged about uh, talking about those uh, Beatlemania days, so to speak. Do you feel uh, better about that now? Yeah, yeah, I think it, it, uh, at first when it happened, all of us were a bit shocked by it happening, even though it was happening to us, right? Mm-hmm. And probably it was a scary thing. Suddenly all of us were on our own, so we all reacted in our own ways, you know? I mean, I saw Paul two months ago, and we spent two nights with a bottle of wine reminiscing, you know? Uh-huh. So uh, it's all cool now. John, uh, do you remember back in those days when it, it first hit you that this was uh, just, you were just more than another band? Do you yeah. Do you remember what period that was? How long into the Beatles? Two periods. I, I can never put the date on it. It's around six, late 63 for Europe and 64 for the Americas, including Canada, you know. Did you find that it was just uh, too incredible to believe at that time? Well, it was like when it's happening to you, you don't have time to think, you know. It's like, you, you know, you've been dropped in the ocean. The best thing you do is swim, right? Mm-hmm. I always called it uh, growing up in a glass house, you know. Mm-hmm. Meaning, you know, like, you get bigger tomatoes <laughs> if you put them under certain pressure, you know? Right. I always felt that we were sort of like 
a bunch of mushrooms that had been forced grown. John, do you feel if indeed you do receive that green card that uh, you would make New York your permanent home? Yeah, I, but I've, I've never lived anywhere more than five years except for Liverpool, you know, five mm -hmm. or six years. Mm -hmm. uh, what I like to do is to travel. I mean, that's one of my, the best things I sort of inherited from being famous or a Beatle. I liked it as a kid, but I couldn't afford it. But now I can get around, you know. So uh, I like to be based in New York because there's a lot of, I like the, I, I just like the city and its whole attitude and everything. I enjoy myself on the West Coast when I go there. Mm -hmm. I enjoy Canada when I'm there. I, I enjoy France when I'm in France, you know. My ideal would just be have somewhere to dump my belongings uh -huh. and then just to travel around. Well, I'll tell you, just a personal thing, Ronnie Hawkins said to mention to you that if you should ever come up here, he's got a nice uh, secret hideaway for you. Uh, I wonder if he's still living in the same place. I had a great time last time. No, he sold that particular farm, and he's uh, living at another uh, farm at this particular point. Well, I'd certainly give him a call when I was up there. Yeah. Tell me, John, let's talk about walls and bridges for a moment. I understand the album took roughly uh, six weeks to put together? Yeah, six weeks in the studio, eight weeks from start to getting it into the, the shops in, in some of the... It's, I know it's not out there yet, but it's nearly out, you know. Normally I'm not more than eight weeks in a studio at a time, you know, because I, I, I find myself getting bored after eight weeks, you know. Uh -huh. Are you one of those people that feel if you can't get it in the first few takes, it's perhaps not worth it? Or Yeah, I, I hate going over and over a song, you know, uh -huh. um, because it, you get to hate it. The musicians get to hate it, and it begins to sound stiff. You know, I, I like to catch myself and the musicians at that point just before they're going to get bored, when they're still interested in, in it because it's a new, re new song, mm -hmm. and just before you go into that bit where it's, well... Let's start from scratch and change the whole format. If it gets into that, I tend to drop it and have an, uh, and and either give the song away or do it the next album. John, how do you go about deciding exactly who you want on the LP? Do you do you feel who would be best on that particular cut, or do you like to use people for say an entire LP? Yeah, I like to use the same musicians for a whole album. I like to augment them with different people, but basically, I like to get get people that I've worked with before, if possible. Because then they know what I'm talking about, you know, if I'm trying to explain myself to them. And also, I feel more relaxed if I'm with friends, you know? Right. And I like, and if they've played together before, it's the next best thing to having a permanent group. Do you feel, John, that you're, you're bothered as much on the streets as a John Lennon solo performer as opposed to the days of the Beatles? No, it's never like, it, it'll never be the same again. And once is enough, thank you very much. Yes. <laughs> Uh, as being a Beatle and all that, you know, we couldn't even go to the movies or go out to dinner, right? We spent our lives indoors. Yeah. But now I, get, I love it, you know? I mean, people just say hi or, you know, what's cooking or something, and a few people ask for autographs, but mainly they just sort of wave or shake your hand, and I get about and I go to eat, and I'm enjoying all the things I couldn't do for 10 years, you know? John, if I'm getting too personal here, uh, you stop me. But I, I just said I'd, uh, I heard a rumor, as we all hear uh, rumors, that perhaps there was a, a reuniting of yourself and Yoko. Well, in, in one way, we never parted, you know. Uh huh. And I think we're going through what, some kind of change that many couples go through. And my glib answer to that is we're just good friends, you know. And uh, we we speak to each other every day, so. You know, there's not, it's hard to describe it because it is a bit personal, but that's about all yeah. I can say about it, really.
John, just finally, um, and I, 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 my personal feeling is I, I hate to ask the question, but I guess for the listeners, uh, sure. Beatles reunion, everybody's talking about it. And I, yeah, I, I wonder when you're going to get to that one, try and answer that question anyway. Listen, uh, uh, with all this immigration business, I mean, the others were getting a bit of a problem too, you know, Paul and George had quite a problem getting in sometimes. Mm-hmm. The four of us haven't even sat in a room together for four years. I've seen Ringo, I've seen Ringo and Paul together. I've seen Paul separately, and I've seen George separately, but many have spoke to him on the phone. So if you can imagine those circumstances, we don't really have a chance to discuss anything like that. Right. Anything's possible, but it's, uh, as I said in the Ray Coleman article, if you say it's possible, it comes out that yes, they're going to get together. If you say no, it sounds like a negative and they can't stand each other. So anything's possible, and we all get on fine, and... You never know, you know, and we, we just haven't had time to get around to that kind of stuff. Right. Well, John, I want to thank you very much for taking the time out of your busy day to call us. It's a real pleasure, and thanks for playing the album. Okay, bye-bye. Whatever gets you through the night. Whatever gets you through the night, John Lennon, 1974, one of his biggest solo hits, with Elton John, and he would not top the charts again until six years later, when Just Like Starting Over went to number one after his death. Before that, we heard a great interview from our archives, John Lennon in conversation with John Donaby in 1974, and you can find a longer version of that interview on our Facebook page at Famous Lost Words. This is Famous Lost Words, and our special tribute edition to John Lennon. Here are some John Lennon cool song facts. Well, I'll start, Christopher. When John Lennon lived in America, the FBI studied all of his lyrics and analyzed (laughs) all his TV appearances in an effort to find a legal reason to deport him. I'm sure he gave them lots of reasons, (laughs) you know. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, the Nixon era, right? That's right. Did you know that Lennon frequently stated he'd rather be a member of Monty Python's Flying Circus? than the Beatles. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know who else felt that way? George Harrison, for sure. Yeah. Okay, Christopher, I want to tell you this story. Okay, so here's a true story that David Bowie liked to tell. John Lennon and Bowie became friends in the 70s, and once they were in Hong Kong, walking down the street, when a kid came up to John and said, hey, are you John Lennon? And Lennon says, no, but I wish I had his money. So (laughs) Bowie thinks this is the greatest thing he's ever heard and starts using that line when people approach him. So he's in New York a few months later, and a guy behind him says, hey, are you David Bowie? And without turning around, Bowie says, no, but I wish I had his money. And the guy (laughs) behind him says, you're a bloody liar. You wish you had my money. Bowie turns around, and it's John Lennon. (laughs) I am the walrus, Mm -hmm. 1967. John wrote the nonsensical lyrics to confound the fans who always dug too deeply into his lyrics. It was also the first song the Beatles recorded in the studio after Brian Epstein's death. From 1967, that's the Beatles, John Lennon, and I Am the Walrus. Okay, let's stay in 1967 for this song. I read the news today, oh boy. That's A Day in the Life from 1967, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, John Lennon. So during the recording of the orchestral part, Tom, George Martin thought to himself, uh, we're being a bit self-indulgent here. But in the same session, he also thought, 
This is bloody marvelous. Right, right. <laughs> By the way, John wanted the last note of the song to sound like the end of the world. Oh, and if you've got that song cranked and that last note comes in, it sounds like that. Sounds almost like the after effect of a bomb, like the, the sustain at the end of it. It's really, really something. Well, there's the apocalyptic ending that John was looking for, right? That's right. From 1969, Come Together, The Beatles from Abbey Road. That song, by the way, was originally written as a campaign song for Timothy Leary, who was running against Ronald Reagan in California. Yeah, that's how the song began, with the phrase, Come Together. Good heavens. (laughs) I I did not realize that. That's brand new news to me. Oh, Christopher, let's move to one of your favorite songs. We've already talked about it before, Across the Universe. Two teenage fans, their names were Lizzie and Gaylene, were hanging around outside of Abbey Road Studios at the time of the recording of Across the Universe and were invited in to sing background (laughs) vocals on that song. Can you imagine how thrilled they would have been? Wow. (laughs) That's amazing. There are places I remember all my life. Oh, what a great song that is. Autobiographical, 1965, In My Life, John Lennon and the Beatles. The song was written after a journalist suggested that John should write more about his upbringing. He later recalled it was, quote, his first real major piece of work. What a song. Yep. But you have to agree that this song is also brilliant. I once had a girl, or should I say, she once had me. That's Norwegian Wood from 1965, The Beatles and John Lennon. So John says when he wrote that song that he was trying to write about an affair without letting my wife know that I was writing about an affair. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> who would know, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay, let's go to 1968 for this song. Say you want a revolution, well, you know. The Beatles and Revolution, and John wrote that song in response to the anti-Vietnam War protests. Let's continue on Famous Lost Words with more cool song facts. Tom? Yeah. Did you know what John thought about Help and Strawberry Fields? He thought they were the most honest songs that he did with the Beatles. Yeah, he felt that Help was a real game changer for him just because it was literally a cry for help. And he wrote exactly how he was feeling. Okay, let's talk about Hey Jude. Go ahead, Christopher. When Paul played Hey Jude for John for the first time, Paul was embarrassed by the line, the movement you need is on your shoulder. But, of course... John loved that line and told Paul to keep it in. And from that point on, whenever Paul performs Hey Jude, he thinks of John during that line. Wow, wow. Christopher, I just thought of a story that will have you shaking your head. Okay, so in the early 80s, at one of my very first jobs in radio, I worked at a radio station in Sarnia, Ontario, Canada. And we were a very light radio station in terms of the music that we played. But they wanted to play Hey Jude, but get this. They didn't want the scream right at the end of better, 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 ah, that part, that scream right there. Yeah. So I had to edit out the scream. (laughs) It's an impossible edit. Like, I was really good at editing music, but it was impossible to edit out that scream without making it sound like the song had just skipped three seconds. Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) It's embarrassing. And we actually had listeners call up and say... 
what happened to the screen? Like, what what have you done to Hey Jude? <laughs> and and the point, like, I'm kind of going, I agree with you 100%, but when the boss, who really should have known that Beatles fans, and people in general know the song, know it builds, and that yeah. scream, it's not going to offend anybody in the dentist's office, which is where that radio station was played most often. You know, it was so <laughs> tone deaf to the music to, and to the artistry, and I had to cut it. I had to make an edit. It's one of the most embarrassing things that I'd ever had to do in my career. Next time you'll say no, right? That's that's right. Well, it depends who's paying me. <laughs> okay. Oh, let's talk about this. This is a really good story. Let's start with this song. Go from Paris to the Amsterdam Talking in our beds for a week. The Ballad of John and Yoko from 1969. Okay, the lyrics are just basically describing the wedding of John and Yoko. And it's Paul on drums. So listen to this moment as John tells Paul to speed up the tempo on the drums. It got a bit faster, Ringo. <laughs> okay, George. <laughs> Great. Go a bit faster, Ringo. Okay, oh, George. But Paul was also worried about the lyrics. You know, it ain't easy. You know how hard it can be. The way things are going, they're going to crucify me. He didn't want yeah. John to get into all that trouble again from his Jesus comments from, you know, four years earlier. But Paul was totally on Team John during this song, and it is a great recording. Also, listen to this moment after they got a good take. Paul and John in the studio, euphoric after the recording of the Ballad of John and Yoko from 1969. Ah, that's great. All right, one last cool song fact for John Lennon and the Beatles. Go ahead, Christopher. For the cover of Sgt. Pepper, a famous album cover, John wanted to put who? Adolf Hitler and Jesus Christ on the cover. Oh, dear. But surprisingly, EMI rejected those ideas because of the potential controversy. You hmm. think? Holy smoke. Well, hmm, there you go. Yes. Yeah. That does it for this special John Lennon tribute edition of Famous Lost Words. Our show was produced by Adam Karsh and Tom Jokic, executive producer Rob Farina. I'm Christopher Ward. And I'm Tom Jokic. Season six of Famous Lost Words begins in just a few weeks. In the meantime, be sure to get caught up with past episodes of Famous Lost Words on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. 